This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts and today we have more sharks for you. We do have more sharks and we also have a guest which we are going to reveal on the other side of this. And it's time for the seventh instalment in our Summer of Sharks miniseries. And we have a guest on this week's episode here with us to discuss 1999's Deep Blue Sea, directed by Rennie Harlin. It's Kate Orton. Welcome, Kate. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and very excited to talk about this film. As usual, we like a good synopsis of our shark movies. Who's going to provide us with one this week? It couldn't be. Well, it is the one and only Nick Reganis. Yay! Every week. So what does Nick have to say about the plot of Deep Blue Sea? Well, in the high hopes of attracting investors for her ambitious Alzheimer's disease research, Dr. Susan McAllister invites Russell Franklin in Aquatica, a state-of-the-art underwater laboratory and former submarine refueling facility in the middle of the ocean. However, genetic modifications have transformed the sea's fastest predator, the streamlined mako shark, into the world's smartest killer. And what's even more terrifying, the laboratory's silent subaquatic assassins are now on the loose. Can the handful of survivors find their way back to the surface before the super-intelligent manhunters eat them for breakfast? Good old Nick. Girls will <laughs> Nick to provide a good synopsis there. So, Kate... We have it on good authority that Deep Blue Sea was the very movie that set you down all these different shark films and kind of got you into the subgenre. By good authority, you mean I told you, Darren, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that'd be it. <laughs> this, this is the film that started me on my Finn fandom, shall we say. So I'll, I'll set the scene for you. 1999, which I don't know if you can remember where you were and actually who you were in 1999. But if you can picture yourself at the New Year's Eve millennium, that's usually a, a good kind of uh, way of, of pinpointing that moment in time. So I was 11 when I saw this film and my dad took me to the cinema to see this movie. I'll bear in mind, my trips to the cinema previously had been Babe Pig in the City, 101 Dalmatians. You know, we're talking family-friendly Disney fair. So to go into that cinematic experience and to be confronted with what at the time was a very convincing horror portrayal of these silent underwater predators and in a very kind of action-packed 
stylistic way completely blew my mind. And it was only when you kindly invited me to, to guest on the podcast and we started going through what short films do you like, Kate? And I, you know, Jaws is is my number one film of all time. I think it's a it's a perfect film. There is nothing to change about it. I'm obsessed. I have I've literally got the t-shirt and the jacket and the hoodie and various other bits around my house. And I started listing shark films and suddenly remembered that Deep Blue Sea exists. And it really is, for me, it's it's seminal in setting me off on this, this love of not just shark films, but sharks. Mm. Um, I have books on sharks. I've swum with sharks, scuba dived with them. I really just, I, I can't really pinpoint what it is because it's, you know, it's not like saying, you know, I love cats or I love dogs. You know, it's not something you can bring home and cuddle. But there is something so compelling about these creatures. They're alien and yet they have this power. They have an intelligence. They're a predator, but they're also so incredibly peaceful and, and such an important part of our ecosystem as well. You know, these, these aren't just monsters created for film. This is something that lives within our environment, within our ecosystem, and is massively under threat. So there's, there's so much to the shark movie and so much about sharks that is intriguing to me. I'm so glad we've decided to pick this one rather than Shark and Saw Women's Prison Massacre. I can talk about that one as well, Darren. As you well know, it doesn't really have the same punch in terms of, you know, environmental messaging and conservation, but uh, it has its merits. <laughs> Few though they may be. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you can find some merits. I was struggling with that one. But as you say, <laughs> Deep Blue Sea, yeah, it's kind of a big, big budget action horror set piece movie in which they really tried to point up the horror elements of it the director Rennie Harling comes from a, a horror background he did a movie called Prison which was I think his debut movie and it was an he M- also did um, the fourth nightmare film he did Dream yeah. Master. Yeah, yeah and I think Prison landed him the nightmare gig so both of those are pretty decent but I think it's quite refreshing to have a big budget studio movie which is actually leaning into the horror a bit more because uh, the set pieces are quite suspenseful and quite nasty. So my argument would be that this is actually a slasher film. Yeah. And um, the the film theorist, um, Carol Clover, she wrote in her um, very famous textbook, what's it called? Men, Women in Ch- Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. Um, and she made this argument, particularly around Jaws, but sharks as as slashes as that sort of serial killer motif. And Deep Blue Sea has an opening set piece that completely plays to the conventions of the slasher film. Um, so it, it opens with some teens having a sexy party on a boat. <laughs> It's, it is everything you come to expect. Just it's put on uh, on a boat set rather than a cabin in the woods or a camp where you'd expect Jason to spring out of the water. You know, it's just a, a change of environment, but otherwise all the tropes are exactly the same. And you have those those nods towards um, kind of moral deviancy. There's alcohol. They're they're not quite banging each other over the side of the hull, but it's very kind of dancing in your knickers kind of thing and then we have the attack of the killer and it is other than the killer is a shark rather than a human 
it completely follows all of those those tropes that we expect from a slasher film and deep blue sea follows that and uses those those slasher tropes the whole way through and um, i'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more as, as we do. I, don't, I could talk for hours about this film as you could probably guess so let somebody else <laughs> have some air time no that's very interesting and it, it's true it does start off like that conventional slasher so I definitely agree there and it does have all those elements in place but yeah the director had wanted to um, make because it's, it's kind of considered a B movie and it definitely on reflection it does feel like that kind of like charming like the 90s B movie but um, I don't think he intended to make a film like that he was intending to kind of return to the heyday of classic horror um, so obviously Jaws was a massive inspiration um, that goes without saying and, and things like The Exorcist and The Shining that was the kind of tone he was going for but a lot of audiences and critics have received it as that B movie style so it's quite interesting that it was intended to have a different type of tone but the way it comes across is a bit more fun. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's particularly like scary or anything like that. I mean, it has, again, great stuff. It is when you're 11. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you've seen a lot of horror by now, it's probably not as scary as some other things could be, but yeah. <laughs> but I will say, I don't know if you know, Hayley, there is a law in shark films that all shark films following Jaws have to reference Jaws. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've, noticed that, I've noticed that since since we've been doing summer of shark every, every movie has a jaws reference <laughs> do you have like jaws bingo when you're watching all of these shark films go oh look there's that there's this so <laughs> so the the reference particularly in deep blue sea is that in one of the early scenes our hunky lead male who we'll talk about in a minute um is <laughs> rescuing sort of a shark who's got a license plate stuck in its jaws haha -ha. yep. the license plate is the same one that's cut out of the tiger shark in the original jaws yeah you couldn't get much more of a nod than that i actually <laughs> i remember when i first watched that i did actually go back and check because when he pulls the license plate out i was thinking i wonder if that's exactly the same license plate and yeah it is I actually remember buying this on DVD. I still have the original UK release of Deep Blue Sea on DVD, and it's yes. in one. It's in one of those cardboard cases with the clip on it. It's really, really ancient DVD packaging on it. Uh, just, <laughs> just opening the DVD to watch it again brought all these memories flooding back. So, Is it like, oh, the past. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> History. <laughs> And Speaking of which, you know, this is a film from 1999. So the tech in it is wonderful because it's designed to look futuristic. Bless her, our doctor, all of her data and information is on floppy disks. So yeah. just in my notes, I've got floppy disks, exclamation mark, written down. <laughs> <laughs> it's all rotating 3D images of like scans of sharks' brains and stuff. But it's on a floppy disk. You're going, you need to change that disk. There's got to be over more than one. <laughs> it definitely shows its age in terms of the technology and like even like the CGI in the movie as well. But that doesn't detract from it being very enjoyable. It's probably one of the best shark films that we've watched in this series, I would say, as well. I'm really happy to hear that. <laughs> and actually, it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. The CGI 
doesn't hold up. But because it's a film from, you know, pre-2000s, there's still an awful lot of physical effects of animatronics and puppetry and, and those kind of physical set pieces. Now, those hold up brilliantly. They, they feel convincing, they feel realistic, but then you have these cuts to certain CG scenes, which, you know, we all understand why those are necessary. But some of the kind of the biggest impact moments involves that CG and really then detract as, as a, you know, 2021 audience watching this film. I, I have a feeling that an 11-year-old watching this movie now wouldn't have the same response that I did back in 99. I'm interested that you got to see this movie when you were 11 because it is clearly a 15-rated movie, Deep Blue Sea. Shh, Darren. into the cinema, Darren, underage. Let's not discourage horror-loving parents from supporting their children on the right path in life. That's very true, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so you get the cast of slasher regulars that we all know and love there are people that are introduced and you just think they're shark food the minute you meet them but it does subvert a couple of the tropes because there are a couple of characters where it's even playing with your expectation that they're gonna die but they keep escaping particularly LL Cool J as the chef I love LL Cool J in this movie <laughs> He's my favourite part of this movie. Oh. I had a Google of rappers in horror and LL Cool J movies. And there is this um, this history, I suppose, of, of rappers around this time exploring horror cinema and, and appearing in some very peculiar things. But LL Cool J is... He's probably the most likeable character out of this cast. In fact, I, I wrote out my cast list and we have Serious Research Lady, yep. Smolder Shark Man, <laughs> uh, Light Relief slash Philosophical and Insightful Preacher, Shark Fodder Non-Specific Lady, <laughs> and Shark Fodder Italian American Man. And then finally, Samuel L. Jackson, because let's <laughs> we'll come back round to Sam Jackson's in this film, yep. Voice of Authority, but likeable and cool, has lapels. Yeah, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson, he's kind of subverting the trope about the authority figure as well, because when he comes on board, you just think, oh, he's going to be the suit in this movie, and then turns out not to be really. He's kind of likeable, and he's trying to get them out of it, and he's on their side. It's not kind of a clash between big business and science, this, really. It's kind of hinted at, but he doesn't come in and say, you've got to make all these changes. There is a little bit of tension because of what Serious Science Lady has done. But, you know, generally, he's portrayed as a pretty cool and quite affable guy through most of it. But what is interesting is there is an exchange between LL Cool J's character, Preach, who's the, the chef in this facility, also apparently bartender at Serious Science Lady's birthday party, and Sam Jackson's character. So Sam goes up to get a drink from LL Cool J and he calls him brother. Mm. And actually, even just him say, delivering that line, he makes it come across as really awkward. Yeah. And that's intentional because Sam Jackson then, uh, sorry, LL Cool J then comes back to something about him behaving and hanging around with risk-taking white people and aligning himself with with the white members of the cast with with the this kind of group who are playing with god's creation essentially 
and LL Cool J's character is called Preach. Um, there's this whole backstory around him having, uh, you know, having faith. He has a crucifix that he wears, which comes in towards the end of the film, and it really polarizes the the kind of two kinds of black people, where we have the kind of very cool and funky LL Cool J who listens to music but can also cook but also is insightful um, uses a lot of kind of street language which I can't say without sounding patronising and then we have Sam Jackson's character who could be an interchangeable white actor in mm. that suit but they've chosen Sam Jackson and I think that that's a really interesting character choice but on reflection of, of this whole film and its characterizations is that they are quite one note. Yeah. Um, yes, Sam Jackson is, is likable and it's, you know, it's nice to see that kind of corporate big boy with lapels being actually quite an inspirational leader type person, but there isn't that kind of depth or intrigue with really any of the characters. They're there to drive the narrative forward. Yeah. But yeah, I agreed, LL Cool J, very much the standout performer in this piece, which is not something you ever thought you'd say, hey. No, it was very unexpected. I didn't think he was going to even last in it for very long at first, so um, it's averted my expectations. But I think, yeah, it's it's a bit of a slow burn to begin with, and then once the action hits, as you say, there's not much room for that character development, so it just kind of goes from set piece to set piece, which is great, because I, I really enjoyed it. I had so much fun with it. So getting into spoiler territory, Samuel Jackson, arguably the Drew Barrymore of this film. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember watching it. Yeah, spoilers, everybody. Samuel L. Jackson is giving this inspirational speech and telling everybody how they're going to get off the platform and how they all need to band together. And he's just getting to the climax of this, like, yeah, let's go and do this thing. And a bloody great shark jumps out behind him and grabs him (laughs) and then pulls him underwater. It's kind of, you kind of see it coming. They, they, they telegraph it a little bit because because they kind of, well, they're not focusing on what's behind him, but the way they've shot it, there's enough space behind him in the shot to think, is something going to come up behind him at some point? But the great thing about it is if you listen to the DVD commentary on Deep Blue Sound, the version that I've got, it's Rennie Harlan and Samuel L. Jackson. And the minute Samuel L. Jackson dies in the movie, he buggers off. He disappears from the commentary. It's brilliant. (laughs) So not particularly invested. Not up there with some of his greatest performances. So it sounds like for him, this is maybe another Snakes type Mm. appearance. But I really love the comparison to him and Drew Barrymore. That has tickled me. (laughs) But I guess the difference is that this, his demise is two thirds the way through the film. Yeah. So as a viewer, we're led to believe he's he's made it through so much of the narrative that surely they can't you know they can't kill Sam Jackson now. You know yeah. we've 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 still at the point that he dies, we've still got the two fodder characters to go. Yeah. So it is a really interesting choice that they made that I love to kind of pull the rug out from under your feet. And go, ah, no one's safe here. Guess who's going to survive? In terms of the the characters that do make it through, I mean, we're jumping ahead in terms of the narrative a little bit, but we have, obviously, the two fodder characters do buy the farm in the end, because that's what they're there to do. Then we have Smolder Shark Wrangler. We've lost Sam Jackson. We have 
serious science lady and we have LL Cool J. So if you were a betting man, having not seen this film before, where would your money be? Well, it would have been... Well, actually, when I first saw it, my my money was that LL Cool J would die at the end because they'd given him so many narrow squeaks along the way. I just thought, at some point, now they've told us he's not going to die. He's definitely going to die. And and Smoldery Shark Guy, Thomas Jane, big hunky shark wrangler, and serious science lady Saffron Burroughs would, would get out because there's a bit of a romantic spark between them, possibly, because they kind of hate each other at the first few scenes. And then there's a little bit of common ground and you you think, um, yeah, maybe they are going to get together at, at the end before they bump off. Serious shot. Hayley, were you were you thinking the same when you first yeah, watched it? Yeah, I was. I was getting really disappointed because I didn't want Serious Science Lady to survive. I didn't think she deserved that because it's all her fault in the first place. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I I heard that they initially had those two characters surviving, and the romantic Correct. subplot um, yeah. was developed further but it didn't go down well with test audiences. So they completely changed it. And I'm so glad they did because I think it would have fallen flat for me at the end. And I say it's so refreshing that you've got LL Cool J as this unlikely hero because he is like the comic relief character. And he does a lot on his own in the movie rather than he's not really entangled with the other people as such. So I think it, that was quite refreshing that they had him essentially be the hero and, and survivor and survived the uh, smoldering, he um, he saved the smoldering shark guy as well. And actually, if you want to get, I'm, I'm going to say the pun again, if you want to get really deep, <laughs> you can loop that back round to that interaction that LL Cool J and Sam Jackson have at the start about aligning yourself with this group of white scientists. And when we again think about Carol Clover's work around kind of white science versus black magic, we're in the context of shark films, we have white science versus nature. And so he is very much kind of advocating nature. He is the unlikely hero, as you say, Hayley, but he's also the solo agent. And then he loops back in and becomes reconnected with this group. And so his character grows in terms of cooperation and teamwork and the other characters grow in terms of their appreciation of the natural world. And there is this, you know, it, it's not exactly the greatest representation of the moral tale that you've ever heard, but about kind of interfering with the natural plan and God versus science and all of that stuff. You know, that, that bit doesn't go down quite as smoothly. Hmm. Um, but yeah, there, I think there is a kind of a critical reading of this film that clearly they were going for some kind of, larger moral and narrative themes but really what this film is about is watching sharks bite people in half so there's quite a lot of that in this movie there's (laughs) lots of lots of sharks biting bits off people in fact going back to another fairly famous cast member you got Stellan Skarsgård in here who who really gets an unceremonious fate he gets his arm bitten off first then they're trying to winch him up to helicopter and it's like homer and springfield gorge it's like it's like <laughs> bouncing off all of, all of the place this poor guy's on the stretcher and they're winching him up and it won't go and he drops back down into the water and then the shark picks him up on this 
stretcher and then smashes him into the facility into the window <laughs> so it's like you know i mean it's a fairly spectacular death but poor old stellan gets a bit short shrift in this movie i mean he turns up smokes a couple of fags says hey i'm the scientist around here and then gets his fucking arm ripped off at least he got to have a final cigarette though yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love that sequence. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And it's like, you know it's coming. You know something's going to happen. But it, it it's just, yeah, the suspense um, in that bit is really great. And it's the first blood as well. And what a, a reveal, a, a move from that kind of slow-paced build-up that you, you mentioned earlier, Hayley, you know, the kind of exposition and this is the facility welcome stranger let me tell you about all of the floors and where all of the rooms are and why this is a perfect trap and now we're going to do some science with some sharks and uh, and you're kind of going right what time is it can i have another drink yet oh wait the guy's had his arm ripped off what and there's blood everywhere and he's crawling across the floor and there's this great big animatronic shark thrashing about in the center of it all and that's where we have then the standoff between, uh, I've forgotten what I've called them now, but, but Shark Man and Doctor Lady. Yeah. And he wants to just shoot it in the head. And she, there's a lot of slow-mo in this scene. Mm. Did you notice that? Yeah, there is quite <laughs> a bit. Drawing thought, out the thought, tension. Yeah. I have a feeling the film would be 15 minutes shorter if you played it at actual speed. Um, and she still slams the button and sets the shark free. And it's like, this woman ends up being the person who makes all the wrong choices and creates all of this death and destruction by, you know, it, it's honourable intentions, but it then gives us that satisfaction when she pays the ultimate price at the end, I think, yeah. as well. I can see why the test screenings where she survives wouldn't have gone down so well. I wonder what Saffron Burroughs thought. Maybe not a lot, but if, you, <laughs> if you're surviving the original... <laughs> all right shady darren um you know and then the test audiences are like no saffron burroughs should die here and then they kind of go back and reshoot it and it's like no sorry saffron your fish food but she has a spectacular death scene she does yeah yeah i enjoyed that Um, i was watching a youtube review of the movie and um it was kind of suggested that did she intend to sacrifice herself or was it just a little bit of an accident um, she tried to get away, but it was just too late. So I think that's an interesting dynamic to think about there. Like, was she actually doing something um, for the greater good? She knew she caused all that. It's, yeah. i tell you what I thought when I was re-watching that scene is, if you were a smart woman, you would have just rolled LL Cool J back into that water because he's already bleeding. <laughs> if what you're really after is bait. But maybe that says more about me than about the film. So maybe she does have a heart underneath all that. Just thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to sacrifice LL Cool J. The one weird bit I do find about Saffron Burroughs' character, and it's not, it's not a character beat. It's what they have her do. There's one point where she's facing off against a shark when she's trying to get some <laughs> kit out of a locker, and yes. there's a really strange bit where the plot dictates that she strips down to her underwear. And I was thinking, like, I I can kind of, I understand why the movie does this, but it just seems so jarringly out of place that, um, and I, I kind of, when, when I rewatched it, I thought, yeah, I, I do remember this bit, and it's still as weird and as awkward now as it was back then. Yeah, someone has said, right, guys, find a reason for her to be in her pants, and yeah. also cover her in oil. Yeah. yeah, it looks a bit like water, but it'll make her tits look great. 
<laughs> right, I'm not saying that Saffron Burroughs is an unattractive woman because she clearly is a very attractive woman. But that whole sequence, it's like, yeah, i got to get out of the wetsuit. Sort of. yeah, and I understand why she has to stand on the wetsuit because of the electricity and everything, but it just seems... To, to be pointing to the fact that you know, as some guy said, like she's clearly she's clearly gorgeous. We need to get her in her underwear. So I remember Deep Blue Sea was quite popular when it came out. I remember seeing like the video cover and and posters and that sort of thing. And it was a a film that I was definitely aware of. But it's kind of over time, kind of not faded into obscurity as such. But it's that type of movie where you'd be like, hey, did you remember that? Um, so uh, looking at the kind of general audience consensus on it, it's got a 5.9 out of 10 rating on IMDb and a 39% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it deserves a bit more love than that. It's better than average, in my opinion. Um, as I say, it's definitely a product of its time, but I think it does hold up to a point. And I think if you grew up in the 90s and that sort of thing, it's definitely going to have that nostalgic factor. On opening weekend, it grossed 18.6 million at the box office. It's been described as the greatest non-dual shark movie of all time by Wired editor Brian Rafferty. And it came in at number three behind Open Water and Jaws as the greatest shark movie of all time on Pop Matters. So it is very much rated very favorably by audiences um so and i think now with the shark movie genre being so oversaturated and there's a, a lot of kind of bonkers films out there like sharknado there's all, all these types of really crazy ridiculous ones i think this one holds up because they did try to sort of do a serious film but it does have those campy elements to it as well so it came behind open water in a list of shark movies yeah not having that <laughs> really not having that this blows open water out of its open water this is so much better than open water i would rather see this team of people taking on genetically engineered sharks rather than a couple bickering for 90 minutes and then faffing about in a stretch of sea and like going oh how have we managed to get caught here it's like because you didn't fucking understand the instructions mate no it's like oh god open water it's i mean let, don't start me on open water. Let's go back to deep blue sea. Yes, let's. <laughs> I always have time for a bit of Darren rage, though. <laughs> yeah. no, it wouldn't be a HD movie podcast without it. <laughs> I just, I can't believe it. I mean, somebody, somebody sat down and watched Deep Blue Sea and Open Water, and after it thought, Open Water's the better movie. In what universe is Open Water a better movie than Deep Blue Sea? If I want to listen to a couple bickering. I'll just go to Cineworld and just wait for the uh, credits to start rolling at the end of a movie. I don't want to. I don't have to sit there and watch it like some some watery argument. Well, there might be some sort of vague <laughs> vague threat of sharks in there. Open water rant is finished. Let's go back to Deep Blue Sea, which is clearly the better movie. Clearly, and breathe. <laughs> Um, so my kind of last thought really is around the ending where you are left with serious sized lady, smoldering shark man and LL Cool J and um, they have a, a discussion about what the shark's motivation is, which is wonderful. And they conclude that all she wants is to be free. 
And Serious Science Lady's response is, we have to kill her. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Serious Science Lady, she clearly just wants to be free and live life as a shark in the open ocean. Yeah, just kill her. <laughs> what is that about? Yeah, I think that would have probably marked her card with the test audience as if it hadn't been marked before. It was like, no, she's going down, serious science lady. <laughs> she really has no redeeming features. I definitely find myself empathising with the sharks the more I watch these types of films, though, more than the humans. Apart from LL Cool J, though, like, he is my favourite kind of human character in this genre so far. <laughs> yeah, I do like LL Cool J, and I think the set piece for me that works the best in this movie is the kitchen sequence where LL Cool J is just trying to escape from the shark and his predicament gets steadily worse and worse the longer it goes on and it's it's almost to a point where it's just it's just the right side of ridiculous because <laughs> the stuff that happens to him you just think there's no way that he's going to be able to get out of this and when he manages to escape one predicament, he lands himself straight into another one. So he tries to do something really smart. And you think, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, do that. So like he dives into the oven because it's got a glass front and the shark can't get into it. And then the shark knocks the oven on by accident. And he becomes a little warm, Jay. <laughs> hey! <laughs> I'll set him up. You put him away. <laughs> and we have to give a shout out to his parrot as well. Yes. Parrot's a great character, and that's probably the saddest death in the movie for me. Yeah, and, and gives rise to that great line, you ate my bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. As soon as, it, as soon as it gets to birds, you just think, right, come on, LL, sort this shark out. <laughs> and sticking with the ending and LL, he does have some songs that he produced for the soundtrack. Um, the movie closes with a song called Deepest Bluest, in brackets, Shark's Fin. It's an absolute <laughs> absolute banger of a tune, Shark's Fin. <laughs> so 90s, so nice. But all these sorts of movies did close off with that kind of hip, cool vibe of rap music. So no, it definitely fits in with that. But yeah, I hadn't heard that song before. But... I was trying to pay attention to the lyrics earlier, and I think it goes, Deepest Bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. I think you're right. <laughs> Which either is genius or he's just pulled some words out of a scrabble bag. Yeah, the latter is more accurate. <laughs> I think I think they're definitely words to live your life by. And then he has another song in it called Say What? It's a bit like at Eurovision this year when suddenly Flow Rider turned up. Yeah. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. Everyone's going, okay, but why is he here? <laughs> what, what, what's he bringing to this musical party not really sure but uh yeah contractual obligations i mean <laughs> kudos to the lawyers who managed to negotiate that yeah i mean it tended to be certainly in the 90s if you had a rap artist in your movies then it was almost de rigueur that you had to have them perform something on the soundtrack i mean ice tea if ice tea was in a movie in the 90s it was like there's going to be an ice tea song on the soundtrack somewhere sure sure enough it usually turned up on the end, end credits if you got the rap artist into acting it then you'd get a couple of tunes from them as well i think that's that's still the thing did you see detective pikachu which is if anyone hasn't seen it is one of the greatest films of the 21st century and you should go and watch it and it's wonderful 
But Rita Ora turns up in that film, which my friends and I looked at each other in the cinema and went, is that Rita? Is that, is that Rita Ora? Yeah, okay. And we just sort of went with it. And then lo and behold, there's a song on the end credits. So either she's really, really into Pokemon or she got bills to pay. Well, I, I wouldn't like to land on either side of that uh, discussion. I'm sure it was a heavily influenced artistic decision. Yeah, I'm sure she's she's fully team mystic and is just, you know, a fan. So there you go, rap artist Rita Ora soundtrack. Is going to see me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Rita. So Deep Blue Sea, I think, is still a really great shark movie. It holds up to a point, but as I've said before, it has more of that nostalgic factor. I don't know how younger audiences today would receive it, but I had a great time. It's one that you can sort of switch your brain off and just enjoy. Absolutely. And and out of all the shark movies that we have been covering, it's definitely in my top at the moment. And I guess that if you're going to show it to the, the youngsters of today, I reckon they'd probably enjoy it more than something like, say, oh, like, Maybe like open water. I think they'd probably enjoy it more than that. I mean, they wouldn't be fucking bored to death for starters if they watched Deep Blue Sea. Darren's on a one-man vendetta here. I will say, I did watch Open Water at a sleepover when I was younger, and I remember being very bored. That's all I can remember about the movie. I remember it dragging on, but I haven't revisited it. I don't think we're going to, because I don't know if... It would, um, if Darren would cope with his uh, blood pressure through it. Oh no, but... if you want to hear like 40 minutes of me going, oh, we stuck out at sea, oh, what do we do next? Please, yeah, well, bring it on. <laughs> so, now I've finished whinging about open water, it, it is that time where we must thank Kate ever so much for bringing her shark expertise onto this podcast and actually bringing a bit of gravitas to our general flailing about that we normally do with shark movies. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Kate. It's been really great to have your insight as well. And um, yeah, we've learned so much about shark movies. So thank you for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, we must do this again quite soon. (laughs) I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 33 of the HD Movie Podcast. As ever, thank you all for listening. And if you liked what you heard, you can follow us on social media so you can find more of our episodes. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, so give us a follow and uh, let us know in the comments what you think of the movies we cover. So, what are we going to do in episode 34? Are we going to do another Summer of Sharks movie? Yeah, of course we're going to do another Summer of Sharks movie. Are we going to have Kate back as a guest? Yeah, of course we're going to have Kate back as a guest. And next time, we're going pretty much up to date. It's a very recent movie. It's John Turtletaub's 2018 flick, The Meg, starring The Stays. So sharks are getting bigger and more vicious. And so to close this episode, because we can't get the rights to the LL Cool J song, I'm going to do an acapella rap version of Deepest Bluest. So we'll see you next time. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, 
Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.